Psalms chapter number 51. Psalms chapter number 51 tonight. Very familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, and, you know, I'll admit to you, I'm probably not going to tell you anything that you, you either do not know or would not see in that passage with a careful reading of it. But it's what the Lord's laid on my heart tonight. And so I want to share a little bit of what God has dealt with me about. Psalms chapter number 51. Let's begin reading in verse number 1 tonight. Psalms chapter 51, uh, verse number 1. We'll read the entirety of the chapter. The Word of God says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here in your house. Lord, thank you for these precious people that have gathered in this place. Lord, they're here because they love you and they desire to hear from you tonight. And Lord, I'm here tonight to give not my words, but your words. So I pray, Father, that as we have have placed ourselves in the appropriate place to hear the word of God for our hearts to be dealt with. Lord, we know that we can count on you to be faithful in that work, that you will deal with our hearts. And Lord, that if we'll be willing to humble ourselves and with meekness receive the engrafted word, Lord, you can do a work in us this evening. Pray for the requests that have been given, Lord, that you'd bless them, that you'd answer them, that you would, Lord, exercise your will in our lives in those matters. But Lord, as we've come tonight, not just to bear one another's burdens, noble as that is, but we've come to hear from heaven to deal with you. So we ask that you'd have your will and way tonight in the preaching of our word and in all that takes place. We'll be sure to thank you for it, Lord, for certainly you'll be due the praise. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to preach to you on a thought tonight out of the 51st Psalm. And David sort of summarizes as he's asking the Lord to do a work in his heart and in his life what is really the theme of the 51st Psalm. And it's found in verse number 10. David says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God. You know, I feel like many of us, and, and when I say that, I say that as a as a characterization of Christianity at large, not of anyone in, in particular, but 
But certainly the condition of Christianity today, or we might say the condition of Christians today, there are a great many of us, no doubt, that are hindered in our walk with Christ for one simple reason, because we have a dirty heart. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, I mean we have sin in our life that has not been dealt with. It has not been confessed to God. We have not asked forgiveness for it. And it stands as a barrier in our progression as a believer. I want to make a series of just absolute statements here so that we don't misunderstand each other tonight. I understand that when the Lord saves a man, He forgives him of his sins. I understand He forgives those sins past, present, and future. I understand that those sins and iniquities, God has promised us judicially He'll remember them no more. They are lost forever. He has uh, determined and declared that He would place them out of His sight and they would not reckon in how God deals with the position or the standing of a man relative to righteousness. And I'm thankful tonight that my salvation is not based upon me keeping a clean slate or short accounts. Because if it was, then surely uh, there's no way that I would ever be allowed to go to heaven. But with that being said and, and being abundantly clear, the Bible also makes it clear uh, that when we have sin in our life, that affects our relationship with God. Now, God's never going to look down at us and say, well, you've messed up, I've give up on you, I'm going to throw you into hell. But in our relationship with Him, when sin is unconfessed and undealt with, it stands as an impediment. How could we have fellowship with a holy God when we have known unconfessed sin in our life? If our relationship with the Lord is uh, supposed to be predicated on the idea of our love for Him, our reverence for Him, uh, our desire to please Him, then what grand hypocrites we are when we pretend, when we play that role of theater and we know that there's sin that is undealt with in our lives. When we read the 51st Psalm, we are examining the life and the heart of David at probably one of its lowest times in David's life. If you were to read the little uh, uh, superscription that's given for this psalm, it gives a little background about what was going on in David's life whenever the Holy Ghost had him pinned this psalm down. And it says this, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, if you're a student of the Word of God, you know exactly uh, what that story is all about. How that David at a time when kings went forth to battle, uh, David instead chose to stay back in the royal palace. Uh, he views, he spies a woman bathing herself on a rooftop. He lusts after her. He calls for her. And uh, they enter into a relationship, a carnal relationship. And from that, a child is conceived. And, and David uh, goes about a, a series of, of, of schemes and machinations to try to cover up that sin, to try to, uh, try to peg the, the, uh, uh, the, the DNA of that child, the, the parentage of that child on uh, Bathsheba's husband. When that doesn't work, David has uh, Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, murdered. This is probably one of the most shameful times in the life of David. He has literally gone from being the sweet psalmist of Israel, the adored king of Israel, to in his own heart and in his own eyes, and in the eyes of God, in the knowledge of God, to being an adulterer and a liar and a murderer. You probably could not describe a more dramatic fall in a man's personal testimony and spiritual development. He is literally at the lowest moment of his life. You could go on to read in the story how that that child does not survive and, and uh, God through judgment 
uh, deals with David, but whenever God desires to do a work in David's life, he sends a man by the name of Nathan. Nathan is a prophet of the Lord. He is a counselor of David. He is a friend of David. And Nathan goes to David and he begins to tell him a parable regarding a man that steals another man's sheep. And, and David, outraged at the injustice of that uh, parable, he declares that the man that had stolen the sheep is worthy uh, to die and that, that recompense has to make, be made. Restoration has to be made. In other words, here's what David says. That sin cannot go unanswered. Can I tell you this, what we have a bad habit of? We think everybody else's sin shouldn't go unanswered. But we somehow believe that our sin can go ignored. I've found this to be a truth in my life. I heard a preacher say this year, years ago, but it's true that the harder I am on myself, the easier I tend to be on others. The harder I am on others, the easier I tend to be on myself. It's funny, when the story's about somebody else's sin, we're ready to amen it. But when it's about our sin, all of a sudden, uh, we get awful sensitive. <laughs> uh, then Nathan, he discloses that this parable, in fact, was not just a generic story, nor was he telling the story of another man, but he places not only his own finger, but we could say metaphorically the finger of God in the eyes of David and says to David, thou art the man. And in that moment, that, that delusion that David had, had held, that, that, that figment of his imagination, that, that, that deception that he had been playing a part in all of a sudden tumbles and God smites his heart and makes clear to David that indeed David had created, had created and had committed a severe and grave sin in what he did. David evidently, and there's much we don't know about the timeline, but David evidently, maybe in direct response to that, maybe immediately, maybe he left his, his throne room and immediately went into his private quarters and got on his face before God. Maybe there was more struggle in his heart as God dealt with him. I don't know. But the fruit of that exchange with God and that struggle with the Lord is uh, recorded and chronicled for us in the 51st Psalm. And it reminds me of this tonight. Two simple things I want to say and then I'm going to preach to you. One, every one of us sins. You sin, I sin, every one of us does. I don't care what our impression is of other people or our impression of ourselves is. The Bible, no less authoritative truth than the very Word of God says that every man sins. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. If man say he hath not sinned, he lies and does not the truth. He deceiveth himself. Second statement I would make is this. We sin, but there is a way for sin to be dealt with. We're going to sin, and that doesn't mean we resign ourselves to that, but it, it does mean we recognize that as, as being something that is indelible upon the human condition. But we recognize that sin can be dealt with. And then I would say this. This is the bonus statement that I didn't know I was going to make a second ago, but now I'm going to make it. And I ain't even going to charge you for it. If our relationship with the Lord is going to be what it needs to be, sin must be dealt with. Can't live with sin in our life and expect that it's not going to affect a holy God and our relationship with Him. And so David gives us a, a pattern here, a pathway, a process for how we deal with sin in, in our lives. Now, let me say this to you tonight. If you're not willing to deal with sin, then it, no amount of preaching is going to get you right. If you're not willing to deal with the sin in your life, no, no amount of exposition is going to get you right. If you're not willing to deal with sin in your life, then no amount of singing, no amount of worship, no amount of praise, no amount of anything is going to change. You have to be willing to acknowledge and deal with the sin in your life before anything can change. 
And because of that, David gives us a few simple thoughts before he even really dives into the heart and to the meat of this passage. Now, let me go ahead and tell you, this passage is divided basically into about four sections. But before he gets to those four sections, in verses 1 and 2, David states two things very, very clearly. Look at verse number 1 with me. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. I want you to underscore in your mind the usage of that word according. Here we have the premise of David's prayer. Why would a man think when he sinned against the holy God that he could come to that God and ask for forgiveness? What would make a man believe that he would have the standing to do such a thing? Now, all kinds of people have funny ideas about why God should forgive them. Some people think God should forgive them because they're pretty great. <laughs> uh, of course, they think they're pretty great. I don't know if uh, the Lord or anybody else does. But some people think that's why God should forgive them. Others think God should forgive them because it's like a return on investment scenario and God's going to get more out of their life than what it will cost Him if He will forgive them. I don't think that's true. Some people think that God is going to forgive them because he has to. Now, I want to be very clear with what I'm saying. There are uh, ways in which God has bound himself by his word. But understand that the very innate nature of God is not dependent on his willing to forgive us. Uh, in other words, he didn't become God when he was willing to forgive us. He was already God. And because he was God, he was willing to forgive us. David has it right here. When he comes to the Lord, he recognizes no promise could make this right on his part. He, he, he recognizes that no atonement on his part. He goes on to say that, Lord, if, if you had wanted sacrifices, I would have given you sacrifices, but that's not what you wanted. And I just remind you as a theological point, we'll put a pin in this, that sacrifices in the Old Testament never washed a man's sins away. That's never what they did. They would cover those sins for a year. And David is a man who's had righteousness imputed unto him by faith. He understands that those sacrifices don't hold in them any intrinsic value of being able to wash anyone's sins away. And so David says this and this alone is why I can come to the Lord because of his loving kindness and because of his tender mercies. You say, preacher, why is that so important? I mean, that's just basic stuff. I learned that in Sunday school. Why is that so important? Because how many times have you allowed guilt or shame to keep you from coming to the Lord and making something right? How many times has your flesh said to you, you've messed up too bad, you've broken things too, too much, you've gone too far, you have no right to go and talk to the Lord and ask His forgiveness? Now, here's the answer you and I should have back to that. That's true. And I never had any right to come to him. There was never anything I could have done. God doesn't forgive you because you promise him that you'll never do it again. Now, if you're really repenting, you, I believe, will have the mindset, Lord, I have no intention of ever committing this sin again. But God knows you and God knows me well enough to know that we're all a bunch of liars and oath breakers. <laughs> we, we don't keep the promises that we make. And so God's not forgiving us based upon that promise. He forgives us based upon His promise, His person, His grace, His mercy. So you say, preacher, I've messed up pretty bad. Nobody knows about it, but I know about it. God knows about it. Uh, there's no way I'd go to the Lord. I've messed up too bad. And the truth is, you were always messed up. You were messed up when He saved you. You were messed up when He found you. And there's nothing that you do that earns that forgiveness from God. But it is all premised and predicated on who He is. And then notice verse number 2, what His purpose is. 
He says, wash me throughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, a person could rightly just study this psalm looking at statements similar to that that David makes because almost like a volley of, of statements, he just, one right after the other, he asked God, cleanse me, purge me, right, deliver me, over and over and over again. But before he gets to any of those, he states unequivocally in verse 2 the reason that he is praying. What does he want God to do? He wants God to take this sin from him. He says, wash me, and I like this word, throughly. Not just thoroughly, but throughly. There's a difference because there's some things that you can wash thoroughly, but you can't wash throughly. To wash something throughly don't just mean to wash something off of it. It means to wash something out of it. And I would say, understanding tonight that we're always going to deal with our sin nature, and I'm not not advocating any delusions that we're ever going to be free from our sin nature on this side of the grave, I understand. It's not until our vile body is made like unto His glorious body that we're delivered from that sin nature. But certainly, when we're praying, we're not just saying, God, clean me up on the outside. We're saying, Lord, I want You to do a work on the inside. I want You to cleanse this sin out of my life and take it away such that it doesn't become just a secret hidden vice that is hidden from everyone else, but something that even in the very eyes of God has been dealt with and done away with. He says, cleanse me from back in verse 3. And it's easy to lose your place when you read it. Oftentimes when I've read that, I've done the natural grammatical thing, which is to go back and look at the beginning clause of this verse, against thee, the only of I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. And I've heard people interpret this verse this way, that... In David's sin, he was confirming and affirming the holiness of God. This is very often the perspective of a determinist person, someone that wants to, to, to claim that, that our sin is just sort of predetermined, predisposed, uh, that we just have to do this, but that in that we are somehow glorifying God through the majesty of His sovereignty or however, whatever hula hoops people want to jump through to try to make that make sense. Let me tell you an easier way to read that verse. The thing that he's pointing back to is verse 3. He says, I acknowledge my transgressions, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. You know what I found this? It's hard for God to do a cleansing work in our life when we won't even admit that we need to be cleansed. If we're, if we're not even willing to admit that we have, have wronged God, that we have sinned, then how is God ever to be able to communicate clearly to us that what we are experiencing is the product and result of that sin. See, here's what happens. When we never deal with our sin, that sin becomes an albatross around our neck and in our life, and it muddles the voice of God to us. All of a sudden, where God would desire to speak clearly about an issue, He can't because it is all corrupted, perverted, and tempered by the sin that's in our life. Let me give you a simple example of it. God desires to bless us. I know you might think that sounds like something Creflo Dollar would say. I don't know if he'd say it or not. But I believe God desires to bless. That blessing don't always look like a Learjet, like old Creflo gets. But I mean, it's he desires for the blessings of his favor in our life. But you know, very often, God, if he has to bless us in spite of our disobedience, one of two things only can result from that. Either one, he is unable to. Because to do so would be to condone our way of living. Or two, even if he just blesses us in some minute way or in some way that is maybe generic in nature. And I've seen people do this. Very often they will take that as the sanction of God that how they're living truly is okay. 
How many times have you seen people that live wickedly that say, well, if what I'm doing is so wrong, how come I'm so wealthy? If what I'm doing is so wrong, then how, how come I've, I've got this beautiful family? If what I'm doing is so wrong, if it's really so bad the way I'm living, how come I have such a charmed life? In other words, it short circuits the ability of God to deal in our life. There has to be a confession, a recognition of the sentence of God in our life. Look at verse 5. He says this, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. There has to be a recognition of the source of that. Now, let me be abundantly clear with this. I don't believe when we sin that we're merely dancing to our DNA. We do have a fallen nature. Every single person born in this world has a fallen nature. Everyone except for one. And that was the one that had no nature from an earthly father, but only from a heavenly father. All of us are sinners. There's no question about that. The Bible's clear about that. And it is true that we are bent towards backsliding. We are disposed towards depravity. Uh, it is likewise true that we make the choice, the volitional decision to do wrong when we sin. Here's what David is, is saying. He's saying this. I can't blame this on nobody but me. It's my nature to do this and I'm indulging my nature. In other words, we have to own that sin and not blame it on anybody else. Not try to deflect or, 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 or defer the blame and the guilt. And that's a real problem in the world we live in today. Everybody that does anything wrong, they blame it on mama, they blame it on daddy, they blame it on society, they blame it on whoever, whatever group of people group they want to say has done them wrong. At the end of the day, you and I, we decide what we do in our life. We need to own the reality of that. We have done it. And then notice verse 6, he says this, Behold, Thou desirest truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Now, at first, I'm going to be frank with you, that that statement reads a little strange in the context. When you read it, he's talking about how he's wicked, how he's sinned, how he's sinned against the Lord. And then all of a sudden, he's talking about what God desires. God desires truth in the inward parts. In the hidden part, thou shalt make me know wisdom. Why does he all of a sudden talk about about truth and honesty. Well, there's a very simple reason. Because he's finally getting honest. And because he's finally getting honest, he's recognizing this. If I hadn't got honest with God, not even God in heaven could have helped me in my situation. God can't help someone that's lying to themselves. We have to be willing to be honest about it. As long as we've got this delusion, this facade that we're operating under, then we're not willing. God would help us, but we're not willing to accept the help. And I would say this, there has to be a recognition of the subtlety in our life. We have to be honest in admitting we haven't been being honest. We have to admit to the Lord that we've been lying to Him and we've been lying to ourselves, telling ourselves that we could live this way and it wouldn't hurt us and it wouldn't hurt others. So number one, there has to be a recognition. Number two, He's praying for a restoration. Verse number 7, he says this, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, let me say very clearly to you tonight, the position we have in Christ, it's not based upon anything we've done, and it cannot be undone by anything that we do. Uh, I'm not saved because I made God promises. I'm not saved because God thought I was a good investment. I'm saved because God, by His grace, provided a way for salvation and a means and mechanism for me to appropriate that salvation through faith. 
in His Word. I came to the Lord, admitted I was a sinner, asked forgiveness, trusted God, and God saved me. But I also recognize this, that though positionally, though in my standing with God, nothing can shake that and change that, that practically speaking, or we could maybe say this, that that in my relationship with Him, I can certainly be hindered in my walk with the Lord. And that can be corrupted, and that can be perverted, and that can be hindered as I try to walk with Him. So I would say this, there has to be a restoration that takes place. We have to acknowledge that our sin has hurt us and robbed us of some things. What is He praying for restoration? And I would say, number one tonight, He's praying for restoration of purity in His life. He invokes the idea of hyssop. And David, no doubt, is using this in a in a symbolic sense. But hyssop, you remember, was what was used whenever the people of Israel were consecrated. Uh, Moses took bunches of hyssop and dipped them in blood. And as he read the Word of God, he sprinkled the Word of God and he sprinkled the people. This is the sprinkling that's spoken of in the book of uh, Hebrews when it talks about the the sprinkling of the soul and, and, and the book of, of First Peter. And what it reflects is the idea of purging us from guilt. Purging us from uncleanness. The idea is not necessarily that of pardon. It is not necessarily that of spiritual adoption. But it is that of, of cleansing and of purity. And here's what David is saying. He's saying, I have allowed my life to be stained by this sin. And now this sin has to be cleansed out of me. He goes on to say, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9, he speaks of it from God's perspective. He says, hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. And let's just sum it up by saying this. He's saying, Lord, I need this sin out of my life. I don't want to engage with it. I don't want to be weighed down with it. I don't want to be tempted with it. Lord, I want this completely out of my life. Part of the reason we're hindered in reconciling these matters with the Lord is very often we want God to cleanse us enough that we feel better, but not so much that that sin is ever outside of our reach. We want to keep a toe over there. You know, we want to keep just a, keep, keep a hand on it. That way we can hopefully try to engage with it again. Now, listen, if we want to get right, we've got to be willing to give that up. Not only that, look at verse 10. He says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I like that phrase, right spirit. Because I've known people my whole life, and you probably have too, that have been afflicted with a wrong spirit in their Christian walk whenever they let sin in their life. I've known people that when they're right with God, there's no one you'd rather be around. And I've known people that when they're wrong with God, there's no one that you would rather dread being around than them. You don't want anything to do with them. David was that man. He became a very severe individual, a very cunning individual, a very manipulative individual, and a very destructive individual whenever he let sin in his life. And here's very simply what he's saying to the Lord. Lord, my heart's been wrong. My spirit's been wrong. My attitude's been wrong. And Lord, I want you to give me a proper attitude. I want you to change my, my spirit and my disposition towards others. I don't think when he says a right spirit, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit didn't indwell believers in the Old Testament. He's talking about his attitude. We, we could use this terminology. He's asking the Lord to give him an attitude adjustment. Lord, help me to have a better spirit. Boy, there's not much that sours us quicker than sin if we're truly born again. And when that happens, we need a right attitude. By the way, we need to acknowledge the people we've hurt through our wrong attitude. We need to go to them and set things right. Uh, if you're like most Christians, when you get wrong in your life, uh, you'll hurt people. 
You'll, you'll lash out at people. You'll, you'll be destructive. You say, what do I do, preacher? We ought to go to those people and say, listen, I'm sorry. I wasn't in, I wasn't in the right place. I, I let, and you don't necessarily have to disclose every detail, but you can say my heart wasn't where it needed to be. And I did the wrong thing. He wants a proper attitude. Not only that, look back at verse eight. He says, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which I have broken may rejoice. He wants a restoration of his praise. Sin makes Christians quiet in the matter of praise. You know why? Because praise is an embarrassing thing when we have sin in our life. It declares loudly to our soul what a hypocrite we are. Because if we really thought he was so wonderful, wouldn't we get right with him? That's simple, right? If we really thought he was so wonderful, wouldn't we get right with him? It would be like a, a spouse that is unfaithful to, to, their, uh, to their spouse, a, a husband to a wife or a wife to a husband. And then sitting down, knowing that there has been that unfaithfulness present there and it's still present there. That relationship with the person outside the marriage has not been broken off. It has not been dealt with. And then having gall enough to go down to the Walmart and pick up a Hallmark card and send some flowers. You wouldn't do that. Not if you value your life, you wouldn't. <laughs> You'd say it all be empty. Because how could they ever think I love them when I won't be faithful to them? Boy. How could he ever think we love him when we won't even get that dealt with in our life, get our sin dealt with? Look at verse 11. It says this, Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Mr. Schofield says this is not a, a prayer that a New Testament believer needs to pray. And while I think there is a truth there, it is true that uh, the Holy Spirit of God will never leave nor forsake a, a born-again believer in the New Testament. It's true that the presence of God will never leave nor forsake us. I'm not sure that's the way in which David meant it. We talked about this sometime when I preached, I preached all the time, about the difference between the explicit and experiential presence of God. The explicit presence of God is that presence of God that is always there with us. And there's nothing that can do, we can do, that can separate us from it. But now let's just be honest now. You and I both know that there's times in our life when though we know God is with us, we don't feel His presence near us. I like to feel his presence near. And I think that's what David was talking about. I think what he was saying is, is not, Lord, you're going to cast me out of your sight forever. I think he was saying, Lord, ever since I got this sin in my life, you felt so far away from me. And I just don't want that anymore. We need a restoration of his presence, his experiential presence. Look at verse 12. He says this, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. You know why there's joy in salvation? Because we know it's a settled matter. I've always thought it strange that a person that believed they could lose their salvation would ever rejoice in their salvation. I don't know about you, but if I thought I was always on the precipice of losing my salvation, I would be the most fearful, neurotic person you've ever met. I'd sit around, I'd pull the blanket over my head, I'd, I'd live in a bubble, and I'd say, I don't want to go anywhere. I don't even want to breathe. Because what happens if I sin, lose my salvation, and then have a stroke? But see, here's the truth of the matter. There's joy in our salvation because our salvation is a settled matter. But part of the reason we enjoy our salvation is because we share in the fruit of that matter with the Lord. I would say this. He's talking about having peace of mind. Having peace in his heart. Enjoying his salvation. Uh, enjoying having liberty, freedom in the Lord that comes from having peace in our heart and in our mind. And I would say we need a restoration of peace. 
the scariest thing in the world would be for us to live in sin and not bother us. In fact, I don't think it's too bold of a statement to say if a person could live in sin and not bother them at all, it's probably a good indication they don't know the Lord. It should bother us when we sin. Now, that's not to say a man cannot sear his conscience, but for the believer in the New Testament, it is not conscience we're leaning upon, but it's the comforter, the Spirit of God. And He will never be entirely quiet in our life. We may grieve Him, uh, we may quench Him, but He still will bear witness to us. And so certainly our sin should always bother us. And if you're a believer, your sin should bother you a lot. It bothers God a lot. It bothered Him enough that He sent His Son to die on Calvary. To deal with it. Now David's saying, I want my peace back in my life. I would say there needs to be a recognition, a restoration. And then look at verse 13. There needs to be a renovation. Or I would say this, there would be a renovation in David's life when he got right. He lists three things. One, verse 13, he says, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and the sinners shall be converted unto thee. Now, I wish what that meant is everybody that has no unconfessed sin in their life will be active fruitful soul winners. But the truth is, and if it depends on how nuanced and narrow you want to be, certainly if we're making no attempt to witness to people, to share the truth of Christ with others, I believe that is disobedience to the Lord. But I don't believe David is saying necessarily that, you know, once I get right, all of a sudden everybody else will get right because the truth of the matter is usually when you get right with God, there'll be some folks that hopefully get right. Some of them are going to entrench themselves in their wrongness. Here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, I lost sight of what I was here for. I I lost sight of why God had me here. The reason that he had me here on this throne was not so that I could indulge my pleasure and indulge my flesh. He had me here so that I could point others to the grace of God. He says, once I get right, I'm reminded my purpose has been restored and renovated. And I'm reminded that I'm not here for me. I'm here for him. And by being here for Him, it's going to cause me to be here to reach out to others with His grace and mercy. Not only that, look at verse 14. He says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, Thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of Thy righteousness. In other words, there had to be a renovation in His perspective. You know why people like preaching on heaven? I'm getting ready to offend the whole church. You ready? It's going to be spectacular. You know why people like, and I love preaching on heaven. There's a biblical foundation for preaching on heaven. It's part, it's, I'm not trying to delegitimize it. But you know why there's churches that all they like preaching on is heaven? Is because the most carnal, out of the will of God person in the world can amen preaching on heaven. That's the truth. Now, I'm not saying all churches are that way, and, and certainly we should be preaching on heaven. It's part of the whole counsel of God. But a lot of churches, that's all they want to do is sing and preach on heaven and have testimony. You know why that is? Because that don't offend nobody. And you can build a pretty big crowd doing that. You can draw a lot of people in that way. Uh, won't, uh, won't all of them know the Lord and won't very many of them be spiritual, but you can build a big church that way. Here's what David is saying. He's saying, you know, I have trouble amening when we talk about the righteousness of God when I'm living in rebellion. But Lord, you deliver me from that blood guiltiness. You help me get my life right. And I'll be able to. My tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. In other words, there need to be a change in his perspective. He had indulged this thing that we all do of viewing God as the great Santa Claus of the universe present there to bestow gifts upon us. 
And he needed to be reminded that our God's a righteous God. Our God's a holy God. When we got sin in our life, we don't want to hear about how holy God is. It bothers us. When we got sin in our life, we don't want to hear about how righteous God is because we ain't right. But when we get right with the Lord, all of a sudden, now the whole counsel of God sings in our ears. There needs to be a change in his perspective and in his praise. He says in verse 15, O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. I've already said it. I'm not going to belabor it. But we get real quiet when we get sin in our life. But you know it's not the will of God for God's people to be quiet. It's the will of God for us to be praising him. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Unless you can hold your breath from now till the second coming, you are called to praise the Lord. But we don't do that when we get sin in our life. Finally, there has to be, or we would say there will be, a revelation. David makes two statements about things that he's learned through this experience. Look at verse 16. He says, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Here David's breaking the fourth wall, so to speak. He turns his attention away from just the Lord, and now he talks to other individuals, other people. And he says to him, you know what I've learned through this? I've learned that there are things that God values more than service. You know what he values more than service? Is sanctity, loyalty, devotion, love. Hey, listen, I'm not saying God don't value service. Certainly he does. We're all called to labor in his field. But hey, we, we are all called to be laborers that are worthy of him and are living a life that pleases and honors him. Very often when we get sin in our life, if we don't want to acknowledge it, we do this bargain with God where we say, Lord, I'll serve you more if we can just ignore that sin. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. God would rather have you clean and living for him than have just another set of hands to a task. You understand he's the Lord of the harvest. You understand he's the one that sends laborers into the field. Therefore, why would we ever believe that we can leverage what we can quote-unquote offer God against his desire for holiness? He, there's a revelation to David concerning God's desire. He doesn't want worship and wickedness. He doesn't want service and sin. What he wants is for us to be clean and consecrated unto him. And then there is a revelation concerning God's design. It's interesting. Verse 18, he says, Do good in thy good pleasure undesigned. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. You know what he recognizes? He recognizes that in this process, God wasn't working against him. God was working for him. What he learns is that God's design in this was not to destroy him. It was to develop him. It was not to hobble him, right? It was instead to help him. He says, you know what the Lord wants? He's not trying to hurt me. He wants to build the walls of Zion. Remember, that's the kingdom David is reigning over. He's saying, God wants to help me. God wants to bless me. But he's only going to do so if my heart and life is right with him. And once it is, then we'll worship all we want to worship. We say, preacher, but I want to serve. Great, get right, and then there'll be plenty of service to do. Preacher, I want to worship. Great, get right, and we'll shout the house down. But if we're unwilling to get right, then nothing else is going to substitute. We have to be willing to get our heart in a right condition with the Lord. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play.
The altar is open. And I want to give you an opportunity to deal with the Lord. Now, I'll tell you this. Anybody that finds a place at this altar. In fact, let's just say it this way. Uh, you might say, preacher, I've got somebody I love in my life. And they refuse to deal with the sin that's destroying them. Help me pray for them. Would you slip your hand up if that's you all over the room? All over the room, I see hands. Let me ask you to do this. If you're able to, won't you find a place down this altar and lift their name up to the Lord? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.